Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. For those of you who have been following along in the book of Ephesians, you'll remember the great theme of the book. It is the church, the body of Christ. Jesus came to the earth to die on a cross for the sins of humanity. His death, his resurrection formed the basis for wholeness, for wellness, for the restoration of all relationships. Man is reconciled to God. Jews and Gentiles are united together in one forever family. The church Jesus is our peace who has broken down every wall, we learned. Paul has prayed that all Christians would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he encouraged them to walk in the newness of life. Paul has exhorted the saints to be imitators of God as dear children in chapter 5, verse 1. And so we discovered that the spirit-filled life would lead to the new spirit-filled walk. That all believers submit to God and they submit to one another in reverence to God. The walk of the believer includes husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, living, loving, obeying, respecting each other in such a way that we are able to live lives of joy and peace. But the walk of the believer will always lead to warfare. It will always lead to a supernatural conflict. What Jesus has united in his glorious life, in his glorious death, in his glorious resurrection, Satan wants to divide and destroy. Just as Jesus has purposed to affect reconciliation in the life of believers, Satan has purposed to destroy our lives. And so the faithful life that's described in chapter 4 verse, verse from verse 1 to chapter 6 verse 10 will lead to the warrior life that's described for the rest of the chapter. Christian, count on this. If you are walking with Jesus in a manner that is pleasing to the Father, if your life is a spirit-filled life, if your life is a life that's characterized by love instead of selfishness, joy instead of gloom, love instead of lust, light instead of darkness, the fullness of the Spirit instead of the intoxication that comes from drink or drugs, you're going to make someone mad. If in your life you don't face opposition from this world system, your flesh, the devil, you are either living a life of laziness or you're living a life of immorality. The reason the devil doesn't bother you is because you pose no threat. 
However, if you find yourself in a bitter battle, if you find yourself in a raging conflict, if you find yourself at odds with your flesh, with this world, with the devil. Well, guess what? Welcome to the world of spiritual warfare. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in the Salvation Army. I don't mean the denominational one. I mean the real one. In, not that they're not a real army. In this chapter, Paul will give an exhortation in verses 10 and 11, verse 13, verses 18 and 20. He'll describe our enemy in, in verse 11 and in verse 12. And then he's going to point out our equipment in verses 14 through 17, that which we've called the armor. And then he's going to end with a description of Paul's faithful envoy, a man named Tychicus. So we begin with the warrior's power. Look at verse 10 again. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. All Christians, young, old, immature, mature, all Christians will fight spiritual battles. All Christians must make preparation. The prepared warrior, the well-trained warrior, is the most effective warrior. When Paul writes, finally, my brethren, we might even translate this phrase from the original language, from now on. Here's the idea. Everything that we've learned in the book of Ephesians, Jesus Christ, the Lord, has returned to heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father from the time that Jesus left until the time that Jesus returns in glory. From now on, the Christian life will include conflict with the world, with your flesh, with invisible unseen malignant forces satan paul states an important principle behind earthly conflicts are invisible powers and since jesus came to forgive and since jesus came to heal and since jesus came to restore the devil will do everything that he can to divide to rob to destroy and you'll note something paul doesn't provide a bio or a biography on the devil he doesn't provide a history of his activity you'll note from the passage that paul assumes the existence of evil angels of wicked supernatural powers, of unseen enemies, he takes it for granted that the reader will also understand this and accept this. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's nonsense. Malignant, wicked, invisible, evil forces. Hey, guess what? We're going to find out a little bit more as we proceed. Paul isn't making a transition from healthy relationships to devilish plots. He is simply stating the obvious. Invisible powers want to destroy your life. There's not going to be a ceasefire. Not, there's not going to be a truce. There's not going to be timeouts. The battle will be heavy. You may be experiencing a moment of rest, a dark stillness where there, it seems that the enemy has ceased bothering you. But the battle will continue until one of you is taken out permanently. Paul points to the source of the power, the warrior's source of strength. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of 
his might. The Christian must not trust his or her own power or his or her her own might, no matter how physically strong, no matter how mentally or emotionally stable that you think you are. If you go head to head, if you go toe to toe in the power of your own might, Satan, I guarantee, will beat you up. The first thing that the Christian has to learn is that it is God's power and God's strength that's available through the Holy Spirit, that's available through the knowledge of his word, and that is available through the collective power that we call the power of prayer. When the saints unite together, we divide the sorrow and we share the joy. Paul points again to the source of the power. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God. It is the person of God. You'll remember in Philippians chapter four. Remember when Paul wrote in verse 13 of Philippians four, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't mean you can fly off a cliff. It doesn't mean you can eat glass. It doesn't mean that you can eat poisonous sushi. It means that you can do everything that he asks you to do. And again, it's not simply the amount of power available. It's the source of the power. If you'll remember in the in the New Testament, in in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaking to the church at Philadelphia, he says in chapter three, verse eight, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power, because you've kept my word, because you haven't denied my name. Whether it is a little power or whether it is a lot of power, you will always have all that you need in Christ Jesus. We have everything that we name that pertains to life and to godliness and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the end, when all is said and done, when the smoke is cleared and when the dust settles, the worst thing that Satan can do to you is kill you. And if he manages to kill you, it becomes your ticket home. It becomes your passport to paradise. I suspect that that's the one thing that really does keep Satan from making a conscientious effort of killing all of us. He knows how happy it will make us. You go to heaven. The worst thing that could ever happen to anyone is to be cast into outer darkness apart from God. And apart from Christ forever. Listen carefully to me. That will never happen to you. If you're in Christ. That will never happen to you. Satan has power, but he doesn't have the power to send you to hell. In the New Testament, Jesus said, fear God. He said, don't fear man. He says, fear God who has the power to send both body and soul to hell. Christ defeated Satan on Calvary's cross. Our victory is certain. Our future is secure in Christ. The death and the resurrection of Jesus destroyed the ultimate satanic weapon, blindness and bondage to sin, a Christian who trusts Christ, the person who places full faith in the lordship of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. They, by very definition, become strong in the Lord and they don't need to fear anything that Satan has to offer. Satan has taken his best shot and he's lost. 
We are at war. It is a fierce battle. It is a terrific battle. But it is a hopeless confrontation for the prince of evil. He has lost. Our strength comes not simply from the knowledge that Satan has lost, but by God's grace, by faith and confidence in Christ, from prayer, from the knowledge and obedience to God's word and faith in his promises. So we go, if you will, from the warrior's power to the warrior's protection. Look at verse 11 again. It says, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The idea is that the prepared warrior knows God as the source of power and the source of protection. In order to take full advantage of our enemy, we have to put on the full armor. That is, the believer must be willing to use all of the equipment that God makes available. The expression put on, by the way, means to put on once and for all. So unlike a baseball player or even a soldier's uniform or a police officer's uniform, if you're a Rocky, if you're a professional baseball player, a professional football player, you have a life apart from football, apart from baseball. If you're a soldier, sometimes you get to take off your gear. If you're a police officer, sometimes you get to take off your gear. But here Paul says, put on. And put on and never, no, never, no, ever, no, never take it off. You are a Christian and as a Christian you are fighting an invisible war and you're constantly, you're, you're never off duty. Spiritual warfare isn't some semantic theological game that people play. Christians in order to entertain each other. Paul is talking about deadly combat with winners and losers. And the armor is of God is to be your lifelong companion. The armor of God gives you supernatural protection from all of your enemies. And so here's the idea. You thank God. You rejoice in Christ. Remember what we learned in Jude chapter 1 verse 24. That, that now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Before his presence with great joy. And so he says that you may be able to stand. Stand firm was used in a military sense. As a matter of fact, when he says that you may be able to stand, it is a military metaphor. It means to hold a critical position during a time of attack. And as you hold that critical position during the time of attack, you don't give it back. The intent of the exhortation is similar again to what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, there Jesus says, Now to you I say, and to the rest at Thyatira, as many as do not this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast. It's the same word. Stand firm. Give no ground. Don't give up what you have until I come. And that becomes an important principle for the rest of your life. Never, no, never give up what you know for what you don't know. Are there problems? Yes. 
Are there issues? Are there, are there questions? Are there circumstances in our life? Do we know everything about everything? We don't know everything about everything, but we know this, that what God says is true. Paul was certainly a prisoner when he wrote the book of Ephesians. We know that from Acts chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 and 27. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. Much of his... <laughs> Ministry is spent witnessing to Roman guards. Scholars and Bible teachers have speculated that Paul spent hours and hours with Romans. And you can imagine he looks at their helmet. He looks at their breastplate. He looks at their armor. And perhaps he he understands what it means to be outfitted as a warrior for Christ. And in a future study, we're going to take an in-depth look at the Christian's armor before we take An in-depth look at the Christian's armor, we're going to take an in-depth look at the Christian's enemy, Satan. Satan attacks God. And do you know how he most attacks God? By attacking you. And by attacking me. We think theologically. Does God have any weaknesses? No. Is God self-existent? Yes. Is there any weakness at all in God? No. If there is such a thing as a weakness in God, his weakness lies with, with his affection for you. He loves you so much. And so Satan, in his wicked, wicked, wickedness, seeks to hurt you and ultimately to destroy you. Because he knows that that's going to create the most amount of pain in the heart of God. And so he says that you may be able to stand. Look what it says against the wiles of the devil. Paul uses yet another Greek word. It's it's one that you're going to be familiar with. It's the Greek word methodea. We have a cognate in our own language. You probably even heard it as I spoke it. Method or methods. The word is elsewhere found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. We've already studied it where it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness, same word, of deceitful plotting. The word seems to have had a military application. Methodia was a reasoned strategy. It is the word that generals would use to describe their plans to overthrow the other in battle. We might say a reasoned strategy. We might even use the term, these are the devices or the methods of of the devil. And by the way, the word is plural. He doesn't just simply have one method. He has multiple methods. And so the word translated wiles carries against the wiles of the devil, carries the idea of craftiness, cunning, deception. The term was also used of the way a wild animal would stalk its prey and then unexpectedly pounce on it. We were talking with one of the peoples at at, at people, not peoples, sorry. We were talking with one of the people at, at Current Ranch and we were, you know, we were talking about in the event of You know, there's bears there and there's puma and there's rattlesnakes. And if you ever get into a fight with a puma, here's what you do. He said, 
Now, what you do is you do this. You take its head as it's trying to eat you. You take its head, you take your thumbs and you put it in its eye sockets and you dig your thumbs into its eye socket till you pop one of its eyeballs out. Because what it can't see, it can't eat. That's exactly right. Satan's schemes are built around deception and stealth. David Brees wrote a wonderful book many years ago. The early edition was called His Infernal Majesty, Satan's Ten Most Believable Lies. In later editions, it came out with the title, The Ten Most Believable Lies of Satan. And it's a wonderful book. Some of the lies include the lie that God is a cosmic sadist. The, the idea being that God doesn't really love you, that Christianity is a joke and a hoax, that he hates you and that God only wants to hurt you. Satan would have you believe that God is a cosmic killjoy, that God exists to ruin your fun, that the idea is, hey, there's this God in heaven and, and he won't let me drink and drug and fornicate and, 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 and steal and stuff like that. All of the fun stuff, he's trying to take it out of my life. Well, the ultimate scheme of the devil includes all the lies that will damn and destroy people forever in hell. Satan is a liar and he thrives on deception. Yet there are other weapons in his arsenal. Satan loves to cultivate an attitude of unforgiveness in the life of a Christian. And you might think, where, how do you go from deception to unforgiveness? Let me help you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10 and 11, it says this. It's probably worth turning to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Different word, device. It's not methodia. It's another Greek word, which means the way you think about something in your mind The way you plan a strategy in your mind. Paul plainly states our attitude of unforgiveness is a weapon that Satan can use to exploit us and to gain advantage of us and take advantage of our lives. The word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 for advantage is the Greek word pleo. Necto. It means to take advantage of, to gain an overreach. It means to take the high ground, but it also means to take unfair advantage. So the idea of an overreach here, if you are filled with unforgiveness, if you are filled with bitterness, if you're filled with anger, if you're filled with hatred, if you're filled with rage, you give Satan an un, a foothold. It's an open door. It's it's an it's an entryway. It's like putting out a welcome mat to Satan going, hey, you're welcome to come on in and play with my mind. That's the idea. Paul adds another interesting insight into Satan's strategy, like I said, by changing the Greek word for schemes 
to a root word that means mind. We might even think of these devices in that particular instance as Satan's mind games. Let me give you an example. Much of our spiritual battle takes place in the invisible realm of our thinking. And Satan loves to exploit us. He'll use whatever he can. Bitterness, unresolved conflict, temptation. You you have to understand something. Satan isn't interested in how little the sin is. Or how medium sized the sin is. Or how large the sin is. Satan is interested in putting a wedge between you and God. Now, I want you to think carefully. Here's Satan's goal. If I can't kill you and destroy you in hell, then I want to ruin your life. And the only thing that really brings joy, value, and meaning to a life well lived is your relationship with God through Christ. And so if a little sin can separate you a little ways... And a medium-sized sin can separate you a little bit more. And a big sin can separate you even more. Here is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal becomes do not think about Jesus. Do not speak about Jesus. Do not live for Jesus. And then you begin to distance yourself. And you find just the excuse that you need not to pray. You find just the excuse that you need not to read your Bible. You find just the excuse that you need not to enter into fellowship. You find just the excuse that you need not to go to church. And someone, even at this very moment, is thinking, I don't need to go to church to have a right relationship with God. Oh, you're right. Church is the one makes a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God comes from having a right relationship with Christ. And the Bible has already, we've already seen that the whole theme of this book is friendship and fellowship with God and friendship and fellowship with each other. So. Satan will use any and all resources at his disposal so that you'll distance yourself from God. How does he carry out his evil plan? He wants to exploit your thoughts. And as he exploits your thoughts, he'll exploit your actions. He hates you. He loves to make you feel worthless. Satan rejoices when you feel trapped and when you feel hopeless. And when you feel trapped and when you feel hopeless, guess what? There is joy in the invisible realm. Because in the darkness of the wickedness of the emptiness, of the distance that begins to take place, you find yourself lost and alone. What are some of his other schemes? Well, we already know about deception. We already know about discouragement. We already know about doubt. And then there's depression. That cold, empty, lost, feeling that resides right on the surface of your heart and you feel like nobody cares. Thomas Brooks wrote, Satan promises the best, but he pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and he pays with pain. He promises profit and he pays with loss. He promises life and he pays with death. But God pays as he promises. 
And all of his payments are made with gold. The promises of God are sure. So how can we prepare for Satan's attacks on our minds? Well, again, we need to make sure that we have the right tool. We need to make sure that we have the right weapon. In 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Remember what your flesh is. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. It's even the good things that you think that you are. He says, casting for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Second Corinthians 10, three for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down fortresses or strongholds. Once again, Paul gives it another military metaphor in second Corinthians. He pictures the life and the battle as if Satan has a walled castle. And there's a trench and then there's a walled castle and behind the wall is a strong tower. And in that tower, you can take advantage of your enemy. And so here is the idea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul writes, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. The battle takes place in the mind, but Paul warns us and he says, guess what? You can fill your mind, not just with thoughts about Christ, but the reality of the message of Christ and the hope that's in Christ and the principles that are in Christ. Again, the Greek term for arguments is the Greek word logizamos. We get the word logic from it. And so logizamos in this context, casting down arguments seems to mean devilish speculations here. The word might even mean prejudiced thoughts that occupy your mind. The idea, the design of the heathen, we might even say the twisted, perverted thoughts, the twisted human philosophies that are placed in our minds by Satan and then distort the truth. Here's the idea. Satan will place in your mind. God didn't really make you. You're the product of of mud slime and a mixture of chemicals that got hit by electricity that over billions of years morphs into you. There's no God. There's just billions and billions of stars. You're not responsible to God. As a matter of fact, not only are you not responsible to God, think about it. The Bible was written by human beings. It's a man-made book with man-made ideas. And and think about what these men are, are trying to say to you. That you can't do what you want to do. That you can't live the way you want to live. And that you can't think the way that you want to think. It isn't really a child inside of you. It's a conglomerate of tissue. It is just an appendage like a vestigial organ worth no more than a gallbladder or an appendix. You can take it out and you can kill it because this is hindering your lifestyle. And Satan will place in your mind any excuse that you need not to pray, not to trust God, not to believe the Bible. Anything that will appeal to your flesh, anything that will give you just the reason that you need not to live a life 
with God, but a life apart from God and cause you to ignore what is right and what is true. Spiritual enemies, Paul writes, require spiritual weapons and our most powerful weapon. It's the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. Most of our weapons are defensive, but the word of God is our offensive weapon. And he talks about it in chapter six, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Look what it says. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When Jesus faced Satan in the wilderness, it was his weapon of choice. And it is our weapon of choice. When we face our enemy and we're going to talk more about that, but look at verse 12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. When Paul says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He implies at least three things. Number one, the struggle is supernatural. Number two, it is a struggle. It's a personal struggle that each and every one of us are involved in. And the word wrestle, by the way, doesn't mean WWE or WWF. This isn't people dressed up in flaming costumes and and going out into the mat and going, "Okay, I'm going to rip your head off and I'm going to rip your arm off and I'm going to beat your head in with the bloody stump. And then they hit each other over the back with chairs. That's not it at all. Here. It means mortal combat. And when the match is over, one person lives and one person dies. In ancient Greek wrestling, by the way, the loser would often have his eyes gouged out. Losing meant dying. The words wrestling and the words struggling were used to describe a type of fighting that was characterized by trickery and deceit. Hopefully you weren't in a fight when you were a kid or even as an adult. I was a lot. And when you're a kid growing up and you fight. You think about fighting fair. Okay. You need to fight fair. No dirty tricks. I was thinking about this when I was out at Current Ranch with with Butch and Sundance. I don't know if you ever saw the movie with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. But there's a scene in the movie where this giant character who used to play Lurch on the Adams family, he wants to be the head of the gang. And he goes, guns or knives, Butch, guns or knives. And Butch Cassidy picks the knife and he goes, Okay, first of all, I need to explain the rules. And the guy goes, rules? This is a knife fight. There are no rules. And he goes, there's none of this. And then he kicks the guy. Well, you know where. And the fight is pretty much over. That's exactly this. Spiritual warfare is not limited to some warrior class of Christian or spiritual elite. This isn't the Christian seals. This isn't the Christian green berets. Everybody fights. And listen carefully. Everybody must win. And that's number three. The fight is futile. If fought in the flesh, you are no match for Satan. You are no match for demons. 
This is a fight that has to be waged with spiritual weapons provided by God. Conventional tactics, carnal weapons will not work. And so the first step in overcoming your enemy is to recognize these fundamental premises. The warfare is supernatural. The warfare is personal. The warfare is futile. If fought in the flesh. So. Before you. Before you were saved. Before you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. Did you sense the presence of evil spirits? Motivating you, influencing you, manipulating you. You might be thinking, no, controlled by self, yes. I mean, I don't remember some demon, some invisible, wicked spirit asking me to do certain things. uh, But I did what I wanted to do. I thought my thoughts. I spoke my words. I did what I wanted to do. Well, guess what? Self is the tool of Satan. Self is what Satan loves to use to further his own agenda because the human self, quite apart from Christ, stands in opposition to God, unites in his effort with Satan in order to oppose God. And so the apostle names four things, four enemies that we wrestle against. The first he calls principalities. Look what it says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities that is the greek word arche or arche we get the word architect from it it means first or chief or principal it means sovereign it always means either the numero uno number one in time or in position or in power and so here i think what it means are spiritual beings who I think are related to angelic beings. The second is powers, literally authorities. And the other two terms, the rulers of the darkness of this world, literally it's world rulers. It's one word in the original language. One ruler of this darkness, or as my friend Frank Peretti was fond of saying, this present darkness. Art and Gingrich define it as the rulers of this sinful world. The last expression is spiritual wickedness in high places. Literally, the spirits of wickedness who live in the realm of the atmosphere. The idea being spirit beings who tempt human beings. So who are these rulers? Who are these hosts? They're the invisible army of Satan. They're demons. They are organized and committed to hurting, to destroying, to killing if possible. And if they can't do that, they're quite content to ruin your life, to ruin your marriage, to ruin your health with drug or alcohol abuse, to pit father against children, wives against husbands, to ruin your life, to take away your livelihood, to destroy your friendships, to develop a sexually transmitted disease or in a moment of rage or a moment of despair cause you to hurt someone or hurt yourself, go to prison, take you out of commission. The spiritual forces of wickedness are possibly those demons that are involved in the most disgusting form of sin and destruction. 
including perverse sexual practices, the occult, demonic worship, altered states of consciousness. For those people who, in the book of Revelation, it's called the deep things of Satan, where people alter their consciousness, use drugs, they'll, they'll invite demonic spirits to come and inhabit them. But they're dupes. They're puppets of demonic forces. Paul's purpose isn't to give a detailed hierarchy of demons, but rather to show the power and the sophistication of our enemy. Any person who's involved in police work or any person who's in the military understands that one of the biggest mistakes that you can make is to underestimate your threat. And Paul doesn't want you to do that. What Christians call spiritual warfare has nothing to do with what you see on TV. And with the make-believe world of Christians casting demons out of each other. Oh, I think you have the demon of nicotine. (coughs) Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, you cannot be possessed by a demon. But trust me, there are really demons Bible students agree that one third of the angelic hosts who rebelled against God became what we call demons. They were heavenly messengers originally created to serve God who were seduced by Lucifer when he led an insurrection in heaven. They're an ancient, an awesome enemy organized and recruited to do one thing. To hurt you. If necessary, kill you. And destroy you. Remember what I said to you earlier. Does God have a weakness? Theologically, no. But maybe yes. I have a weakness. It's my children. You threaten my children, you threaten me. You hurt my children, you hurt me. I take it personally. Every single time. There's another thing that I take personally. I actually love my country. I love the United States of America and I love being a United States citizen. And when you kill Americans, you threaten me. There are three things that I will die for. My country. My family. My Lord. Look what it says. We live in a world. We live in a culture that gravitates to equal and opposite extremes. But Paul says, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Do devils and demons really exist? Yes. Do they really possess people today? The answer is yes. But not in the way that some people think. I I had a roommate who was, his car broke down, his truck broke down. I saw him outside. He's outside and he's going, devil, I bind you. Satan, come out of that transmission. And I'm thinking, are you an idiot? Are you nuts? Don't you think Satan has better things to do than to occupy your transmission? Satan doesn't inhabit physical objects. Except except for maybe computers. (laughs) So how how does the Christian deal with demons? 
If you go all the way back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter one in verses 19 and 20, it says this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, when God raised Jesus from the dead and placed the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you got everything that you needed. In James chapter 4, verse 7, James writes, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Christian, you must first submit to God. You must resist the devil and you must put on the armor and you must keep it on. By the way, there's four principles to stand on. Number one, no satanic assault is stronger than God ever. Number two, no satanic scheme can penetrate God's armor. Number three, no satanic force can defeat God's work. And number four, no satanic evil can prevail in the end over the collective prayers of the saints. The reality is this. You're stronger together than you are apart. When we go to God by prayer, the devil knows we go to fetch strength against him. You remember the old song? That goes, I'll talk about you if you, you know, you talk about me, but I'll talk about you when I'm on my knees. That's the best place to talk. C.S. Lewis once said, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. Unquote. I like that. It's C.S. Lewis's way of saying Satan demands that you save yourself. Your castle. And abandon Christ. The bishop of your soul. You don't need God. You don't need Jesus. You don't need the Bible. You don't need Christians. Give up. Give up. Give up. Give up. Paul says. Don't give up. Stand firm. Stand fast. Stand faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that it is an invisible battle. Lord, we know that we have to put the armor on. And Lord, we know that we must never, no, never, no, never take it off. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's been living a life of torment. Of constant conflict. For the person who says, I hate it. I hate conflict. I hate fighting with my husband. I hate fighting with my wife. I hate fighting with my children. But Lord, I pray that we would remember that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. That behind these conflicts, there's an invisible, supernatural war taking place. And Lord, we pray that we would be outfitted for the battle. Lord, I pray for the person who's so sick of the conflict. But Lord, I pray that they would cease fighting in their own strength and in their own power. Lord, I pray that they would appropriate all the equipment that is available through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that we would be prepared 
for war. And again, Lord, we trust you. We love you. Satan is looking for all kinds of reasons to separate us. Jesus is looking for all kinds of reasons to unite us in Christ, to God, in him. Lord, we commit that to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.